According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Philippians. And this morning we start our review of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. There we go. Philippians chapter 2. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Call upon our Father in His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in the, the privilege that we have to obey your commands. You command us to study, to show ourselves approved. And we're so happy to obey that order, Father. Uh, it's a blessing to study. It's a blessing to learn and to grow. Uh, we pray as we learn new things that uh, as we reinforce what we've already learned, Father, that you would bring to our remembrance the abundant blessings that you continue to pour forth. We thank you for all things, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Philippians chapter 2. I was sharing some things from the website there tonight, and I don't mind doing it again this morning. If... Uh, should load this earlier. When you open your web browser, and of course, AustinBibleChurch.com ought to be your homepage every time your, your web browser opens up, then um, uh, going to the, any of these are clickable. So uh, I typically, if I just want to click on audio recordings, then you get everything we do in every series, the most recent one at the top, and uh, that might be what you're looking for. Or if you just want to limit it to a particular study, then uh, you can select Philippians or Hebrews or Proverbs uh, from over here. And it doesn't matter if you select the Sunday Philippians or the Wednesday Philippians. It's all just the same Philippians. And so when you click that, then you get a listing here, uh, again, with the most recent one on top and uh, the newest ones. And that's, that's for convenience sake, because typically folks want to uh, get caught up on a class that was taught recently or something they missed or uh, of that nature. But if, uh, if you don't want to listen to them in reverse order, if you want to actually go back to the beginning and listen to them, then you can resort the, the uh, lit by clicking on the top there on the listen button. And that just simply reorders it from top to bottom and takes you back to class number one on uh, February 12, 2017. And, uh, and you can have fun, go back through the 194 that we've taught and, and just listen to them all. You can also drill down uh, by chapter and you can drill down by subject and that I wanted to bring to your attention as well if you're not familiar with that. On the right hand side there you got the possibility of drilling down by chapter and so what I'm essentially doing in this review is just going back and showing the slideshows running through, giving the highlights, hitting the, the big scripture ideas uh, of what we did. So um, highlighting here chapter 2 you'll notice and selecting it. Now, when you select it like that, did you notice what happened on the left side of the page? That everything then got uh, got uh, kind of focused in. Everything there got narrowed down. So now the listing of MP3s is still there. It's still in reverse order with the newest one at the top. Of course, you can resort that again if you need to. Uh, but now it's limited to just the chapter two uh, lessons. Just the chapter two lessons, uh, which uh, again, if you reorder it. It's class number 73 through, uh, through 114. So, uh, so they're listed there in, on that page in that order. And then if you want to narrow it down even more, you have additional subdivisions. You notice when I selected chapter 2, then it opened up uh, a submenu there on the right 
So we've got uh, Philippians 2, 1 and 2, Philippians 2, 3 through 11, Philippians 2, 12 through 18, and then Philippians 2, 19 through 30. And those were the, the sections of the chapter that we broke down and did uh, separately. We did those independently. Each one of those uh, developments had its own outline, its own development. So, um, And again, those are also uh, clickable. So now if we're going to uh, zoom in again to Philippians 2, 1 and 2, you'll notice... Um, that the listing of MP3s just uh, just focused even more. Now now they're right there, 73 through 80. They're right there on the same page. They're right there all on the same page, and so you can you can select them one by one, listen to them, or um, you can click the little subscribe button here, and that will give you the URL that you can plug into your uh, podcast. You can plug that into your device, and so that you can just download all uh, eight of those uh, in one fell swoop. Swell foop. No, fell swoop. All right. Anyway, what we're going to cover today then is essentially I'm going to use this hour to try to review eight hours worth of doctrine, right? Which is a lot. You can't just take eight hours and boil it down into a single hour. However, um, we can at least uh, put the slideshow up because I save all my old slideshows. Put the slideshow up. We'll start working our way through the slides and uh, and again hit the uh, the big ideas here. So the big ideas in verses one and two, first of all, Chapter 2 features three exhortations and some travel arrangements, some travel arrangements for Paul's envoys. Uh, essentially, the three exhortations come in verses 1 through 18, and then the rest of the chapter centers on the travel arrangements, uh, talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus in uh, verses 19 and following. These exhortations are actually follow-ups to the closing exhortation from chapter 1. Remember, as uh, we talked about the conflict in, at the end of chapter 1 and conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so those uh, conflicts that were highlighted there feed the three exhortations that come in chapter 2. So we have make my joy complete, have this attitude, and work out your salvation. Those are the three exhortations here in chapter 2. And so they also form the outline that we uh, broke the chapter down into. So this morning we'll review verses 1 and 2. We come back Wednesday night We'll take a look at verses 3 through 11. And I think uh, just taking a single class to, to review each of these separate outlines uh, will form really a sufficient review for the whole series when it, uh, when it comes right down to it, trying to recap uh, two, two years' worth of study in uh, four or six weeks as it comes down to it. All right, so looking at verses 1 and 2 then, make my joy complete. It says in verse 1, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. All right, those two short verses, and we took eight classes to uh, eight hours of teaching to work our way through those two verses there. All right, so we start with this make my joy complete, almost like Dirty Harry saying make my day. And uh, I even tried to try to joke about that a little bit. We were trying to create a make my joy complete uh, internet meme that uh, might catch on. But this is what it is, make my joy complete. Paul already had personal rejoicing, but he wanted that rejoicing to be complete, fulfilled, mature, to have the fellowship of additional rejoicing on the part of the Philippians themselves and their pursuit of the will of God, their um, engagement in ministry functions. He even states in this verse how they're going to do that. 
they're going to make his joy complete by, in a, in a fourfold way here, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. When a congregation is unified in their ministry pursuits, that just thrills the spiritual leadership beyond words. And Paul said that, that just completes his joy. It's like icing on the cake, we might say. And same thing for a pastor in a church today when he watches his uh, church members and they're, and they're striving together for the faith of the gospel, when they're like-minded in their ministry pursuits, when the deacons are, are like-minded and unified and not you know, fighting with one another and arguing about different things and trying to, you know, the, the property guy is trying to steal some of the budget away from the, the, the Sunday school guy. Or, you know, they're not at each other's throats arguing about different things. That's great when there's unity of the Spirit uh, described in this way. So we'll be outlining all of that here this morning. But it starts with uh, a therefore, which links it back, and then it uh, uh, goes through four if statements, all of which are true. So uh, the context then, suffering for Christ's sake. This is what uh, concluded chapter 1, suffering for Christ's sake and experiencing the common conflict with Paul. That's verses 29 and 30 that ended chapter 1. That then becomes the basis for the three exhortations that start chapter 2. And uh, just taking a peek back to chapter 1, in verse 29 it says, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him but also to suffer for His sake. For to you it has been granted And of all the things you would ever want to study related to election and predestination and the sovereignty of God and everything you want to study related to the plan of God and His wisdom to grant certain things, I think we all can rejoice that He granted for us to get saved, that He granted that I would believe, uh, thankfully, that He granted that and I did that in September of 1973. And all of us would rejoice in that. But then can we rejoice in the second part of what He also granted? Not only to believe but also to suffer for His sake. And uh, that's the tough one. <laughs> that's the one where I think a lot of us would say, well, uh, no thanks, right? I'm, I'm happy to believe, but can I, can I decline on the, on the suffering thing? No, you cannot. Because in both cases, both to believe and to suffer, when the Father granted it, it wasn't even for your sake or my sake. It was for Christ's sake. It was for Christ's sake that you believed. It was for Christ's sake that the Father granted that you would believe. Likewise, it's for Christ's sake that the Father granted that you and I are going to suffer. That we're going to suffer as uh, believing ones. We're going to suffer as Christians, not as Easter worshipers, as Christians, okay? The media tried to paint Christians as Easter worshipers. What a dumb expression, right? Christians, we name the name of Christ. We're not in Adam, we are in Christ, And so for you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him but also to suffer for His sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me. And here we go. So common conflict. The things that we have in common. The fact that we're believers in Jesus Christ means we have fellowship with the Father, fellowship with His Son and much of that fellowship is sufferings. It's called the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformable unto His death. And so fellowship, the common sufferings that we have, and so experiencing the same conflict which you saw in, and now saw in me and now here to be in me. One of the great indicators of the fact that Paul had only been to Philippi once is that expression right there. You saw it, 
the one time I was there, and now you hear that it's in me based upon our correspondence back and forth ever since, uh, ever since Paul left town. All right. So this then becomes the basis. The therefore in chapter 2 and verse 1, the therefore brings the, the, uh, the suffering and the uh, sharing of conflict, it brings it now into these three applications. All right, therefore. And then uh, there's a, also a so then in 2.12 that also forms a link. If, 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 if. Four ifs. If, 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 if. Therefore, if. If, if, if. Four of them. There is any encouragement in Christ. If there is any consolation of love. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit. If there is any uh, affection and compassion. And all of these ifs are combined. In other words, every one of these circumstances is true. Uh, but if any one of them is true, still the imperative would follow. The exhortation would follow. All four ifs are first class conditional clauses and they are all assumed to be true. And if you want to know how does it take eight classes to teach two verses, well, part of it happens when uh, you slow down and you just explain to people what are the four uh, classes of if. Because we have four ifs, and it would be kind of fun if, if uh, grammatically anyway, for a language geek, if Paul was going to try to use a first class followed by a second class, followed by a third class, followed by a fourth class, that would be a sweet thing to do and, and a great passage to take a, a Greek student to, to show, hey look, here's all four of them in the same verse. Well, that doesn't happen. But Paul uh, gives four ifs here, and all four of them are first class conditions that are either true, literally true, or assumed to be true for the sake of the argument or the logic of what is being communicated. All assumed to be true. And that's what we have here. And so in the subpoints, we reviewed these and looked at the different classifications of if. First class is assumed to be true for the argument's sake. And uh, you can spot it in the text because it uses the particle A, the EI particle, and then it uses uh, an indicative uh, verb in any mood. And uh, we've got examples of this in Matthew 4, which I think is quite striking. When, uh, when Satan comes to Jesus and says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. And uh, Satan was using a first class condition of if. He's, he knows that, that he's the Son of God. And uh, a lot of times translators will use since as the translation, since you are the Son of God. But if you are the Son of God, uh, Matthew 12 is another example, Galatians 2, Galatians 5. So many of these, and they're, they're assumed to be true. Um, do you remember what any of the rest of these are? <laughs> Matthew 12. On a good day, I can just glance at a verse and it'll just jump right out at me. But uh, I haven't woken up quite yet this morning. Matthew 12. If I by Beelzebul cast out demons... Now, that's not what he's doing. But Jesus grants it for the sake of argument and uses a first-class condition here and says, okay, let's just say I'm doing that. Okay? I mean, he's not. But he plays along with him and says, okay, let's assume I'm doing that. Then by whom uh, do your sons cast them out? <laughs> so he's going to grant their argument, but then he throws it right back in their face and says, what are you really proving here? And so for this reason, they will be your judges. But if, again, first-class, I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. So he assumes both of them to be true and forces them to deal with the consequences. So I like that. Galatians 2.18, another example. 
Galatians. And, and we do the same thing. We could do the same thing in English. Uh, we do the same thing in uh, conditional uh, clauses that we express. These are all applications for formal logic. Galatians 2.18, if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And there's a context for that. How about 5.18? If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Praise God. <laughs> Praise God, because I don't want to be under the law. Not, not, uh, not one day, not one minute. Of course, Philippians 2.1, and we'll have another one in Philippians 2.17. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. That's after he already talked himself into the, the conclusion that he's not going to die in uh, prison, at least not on this occasion. But he says, even if, and assumes it to be true for the sake of the argument. Colossians 3.1, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. That's the verse I cite every time uh, I dunk somebody at baptism and then bring them back up. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. There's an even stronger form, uh, the aper particle, E-I-P-E-R, and that's used in Romans 8, 9. Used in Romans 8, 9. Even stronger than uh, the typical first class condition. If indeed. However, you are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If indeed. Since obviously it is true. The spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So you have the stronger if indeed there. All right, so that's the first class condition. And we can, uh, we can enjoy those every time we come across them. Second class condition is the opposite. Second class is not true. And it's known to not be true. But we express it anyway and say if it is true or if it would have been true under different circumstances, then here is what a consequence would have been. And so if uh, not true, but if it had been true, then here's some consequences. And uh, you can spot this in the Greek because uh, you have A, the same particle EI that you have for the first class, but then you have a past tense indicative and then you have the particle on, AN, uh, followed by a past tense indicative. And so there's a lot of should have, would have, and could have that come across in this kind of a, of a format. And uh, these are very useful. We use these all the time as well in daily life. And, uh, and, and I think it's common to the human experience that we reflect upon past choices and identify, yeah, that was not a good choice. <laughs> or we identify regrets. Or we identify, boy, if I could change something, I would have, you know. And so I think common to the human experience then of, of reflection and, and regret uh, then is the recognition that under other circumstances, had other choices been made, then, you know, different outcomes would result. And in some cases, we would prefer those, those other uh, results. And so when Jesus is rebuking the cities of, 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 uh, of Capernaum, for example, and, and Chorazin and Bethsaida, because he says, if the miracles done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. They would have repented. And that, that's, that's a powerful statement right there. And he even goes on to say, Sodom and Gomorrah would remain unto this day. They would still be populated cities 2,000 years later as a response to some Jesus miracles uh, had, had Abraham or Lot or anyone else uh, been assigned to go in there and do those kind of miracles. That they, there could have still been populated Sodom and Gomorrah in the first century when Jesus was walking the earth. So that's, uh, those are extraordinary statements.
And there's many, many more. And, and it's worthwhile going through. Because when God speaks about the if-then consequences of things that never happened, I think it opens our eyes to see the totality of God's omniscience. The fact that His foreknowledge encompasses not what He, not limited to what He has foreordained. Of course, He knows what He's foreordained, but He also knows the things that He never foreordains because they never happen. But He knows with certainty that they could have happened. They would have happened under other conditions, see? And that becomes powerful. All right. Then we have a third class condition. This is the one we usually think of with respect to if. This is maybe yes, maybe no. If we confess our sins. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. Maybe we'll decide to, uh, I don't know, we're going to enjoy our carnality a little bit longer. Because by golly, we've sinned, we're out of fellowship, and we're, we're having fun. All right, But eventually though, that discipline gets rough enough that we decide, okay, this isn't fun anymore. I need to confess. I need to be right with the Lord. And so if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's a third class condition. It might be true, it might not be true, it's conditional, but if it is true or when those conditions are met, then and only then is the consequence applied. Okay, And you can spot this as well. Uh, This uses um, aeon as the particle, plus it uses a subjunctive tense verb. It uses the subjunctive mood. Okay, And so anytime you spot aeon and then you spot a verb that follows it in the subjunctive mood, that's uh, that's your clue that you're looking at a construction there that is is, uh, a third class condition. So as I mentioned, 1 John, if we confess our sins, 1 Corinthians 13, where he talks about if I know all things or if I have, uh, uh, it talks about the, the spiritual gifts minus love. Those are all examples of third class condition. Um, Matthew 4, 9, another if in the, this one's in the third class, whereas Matthew 4, um, the first one we looked at was in the first class condition. Matthew 4, 9, when he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So when he said, if you are the son of God, that was a first class condition. But when he says, if you will fall down and worship me, that's a third class condition. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. But if you do, Jesus, if you do worship me, then I will give you all the the kingdoms of the cosmos and all their glory. So that's a third class condition there. Matthew 6 verses 22 and 23 The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. Third class condition. If it is, great. If it's not, well then, no. You don't get the, con- you don't get the, uh, the then statement. Same thing in verse 23. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So those are third class conditions of, of if. All right, I don't remember John 8. 31. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, this is important, right? Because I got saved in verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So then he's speaking to those who believed in him. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. Okay, it's not my opinion, it's what it says right here. If you continue in my word, third class condition. Because maybe you will, maybe you won't. Some believers do, some believers don't. There's an awful lot of folks that are saved because they believe 
but then they don't have the third class condition if or they abide in the Word of God. They certainly don't live in the Word of God. They might visit occasionally, you know, they drop in every now and then, but they don't live in it. They don't meno, abide, dwell, remain in the Word of God. But if you do abide, dwell, remain in my Word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. See, discipleship means you've got to be living in the Word. Abiding, remaining, dwelling full time in the Word of God to be a disciple. Not every believer is a disciple. That's the conclusion you have to come to when you're looking at 30, 31, and 32. All right, and then there's a fourth class. Very rare, and some even dispute whether they even appear at all in the New Testament. Uh, Fourth class condition. And this is kind of an optative, it's kind of a wish it's like, you know, I really would like for it to be true, but I have to admit that it's probably not, okay? And uh, it is possible as to fulfillment, but it is remote. And so that uses the A particle in the protesis with the optative mood, the on particle in the apotesis with the optative mood. And again, uh, there's really no pure forms of this anywhere in the New Testament, but there are uh, some functional equivalents uh, in, in just a handful of places. And Luke is the author that uses them. Um, not surprising since his Greek is the most classical, the most polished of all the, uh, of all the New Testament authors. So Luke 1, 62, Acts 8, 31, Acts 17, and Acts 20 then being uh, the functional equivalents or the closest that we come to a fourth class condition in, uh, in the Greek New Testament. All right, so now assuming these four things, assuming that these are all true, because they are. They're assumed to be true, and it's pretty self-evident from Scripture and experience that, uh, that they are all true. There is encouragement in Christ. Okay, There is encouragement in Christ, even if it's a small amount. Even if there is any. And uh, all of these ifs are followed by any. Any, 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 any. And so um, we, we do the same thing in English. We say, do you have any sense of humor? right? Do you have any, uh, you know, and and when we use that expression, do you have any compassion? Well, you know, I'm just looking for a smidgen, just a trace amount. And uh, do you have any, do you have any idea what I'm talking about right now? Okay, that would be just a trace amount. And Paul uses that. It gets very effective. If there is any, even the smallest amount of encouragement in Christ, well, biblically we can prove of course there is. And by experience, we can improve. Of course, there is. Every one of us can testify to comfort, paraklesis. We can testify to comfort, exhortation, encouragement, that all of us have received comfort in Christ. You can't be saved and not testify to comfort in Christ. Uh, receiving eternal life is a comfort. Having your sins forgiven is a comfort. Um, being reconciled to God the Father, that's a comfort. So, of course, there's comfort in Christ. And much more than we give it credit for because we've got to stop and actually identify the comfort in Christ. And so he's the God of all comfort. He's the Father of, of mercies and God of all comfort. And, uh, and he can prove that repeatedly. Uh, all the uses of paraclesis there in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, also 2 Corinthians chapter 7, repeated uses of, of comfort there. God who comforts the depressed. See, that's why I don't need to uh, you know, pay hundreds of dollars per billable hour and, uh, and drug myself with methamphetamines to feel good about myself. I can go to the God of all comfort and He will provide. Paraclesis, by the way, is also the basis for one of our spiritual gifts. 
We have 11 spiritual gifts in the church age, one of which is the exhorter, the exhorter comforter that we have in uh, that uh, three members of our congregation have actually stood and testified and they've made the confession that that is their gift, that is their ministry. And so if you need comfort, I'll point you their direction. (laughs) All right. If there is any, even the smallest amount of consolation of love, paramuthion of agape, consolation of love. Some, in addition to comfort comes a consolation. And sometimes in, in human terms, unbelievers can attempt this. An unbeliever comes and tries to give you comfort. That's the kind of comfort the cosmos can offer, like a worldly comfort. Uh, but then sometimes they can't. Sometimes there is no worldly comfort that you can possibly give. So if you can't give comfort, the least you can give then would be consolation. You say, well, if it's any consolation, right? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not able to comfort you, but maybe uh, this will console you. Um, and so that's kind of a, a backup for the unbeliever. But we get both. We get both because we have the, the comfort in Christ, but then we also have consolation of agape love. And so uh, it's, it's really, it's a blessing to have the comfort and the consolation combined. And uh, because when, when the world gives it, it's a consolation minus comfort. When God gives it, it's consolation as well as comfort. And so we can be consoled. And uh, the, uh, the, the consoling of one another is, is, is truly a joy because it's sanctified uh, empathy. It's, it's, it's the sympathy and the empathy that we have as we console one another, as we feel what the other person is feeling because God Himself is feeling what the other person is feeling. Jesus Christ can feel what we're feeling because He's felt it before. He has experienced everything in the human realm on an experiential basis. That's, uh, that's, that's a, a neat thing to consider. So um, we've got this neuter noun of paramuthion. Uh, there's a feminine noun that's really, I think, a synonym um, of, of paramuthia. It's used in 1 Corinthians 14.3. the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Edification, exhortation, and consolation. Everything you need to be consoled in life is going to happen through the Word of God. Appreciate that. And then uh, the verb, paramuthaamai, paramuthaamai, is that me? I'll quit doing that. All right. Paramuthaamai. And this talks about the consoling, the emotional consoling. It's, uh, it's, it's really, um, uh, I think, useful in a lot of different connections. But we have it there in John 11, 19 and 31, uh, when Lazarus had died and Mary and Martha and all their friends, uh, there's a lot of boohooing at the funeral. And they even, in the ancient world, you could pay for extra boohooing when you get the professional mourners to come. And... Um, and uh, that's consoling. They were, and, and in some cases, uh, a person can refuse to be consoled if, uh, if they're really going into hysterics on, on different things. 1 Thessalonians 2.11 and 5.14 also speak of the verb where uh, the consoling activity takes place in, uh, in, the, in the blessings of a, of a church uh, context here where it's, it's really our role in the body of Christ to be able to do this one to another. So 1 Thessalonians 2.11 You are witnesses and so is God how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers 
just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. And so there is a consoling that happens there. I believe it's rendered as, um, I think there's the exhorting and the encouraging and the imploring. And it's rendered encouraging in that verse. And then uh, 5.14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. And the encourage the faint-hearted there is the console, consolation, give consolation to the faint-hearted. Help the weak, be patient with everyone. So we have consolation. Is there any, even the smallest amount of fellowship in the Spirit? Well, of course there is. Quinonia in the Spirit. In fact, if you're out of fellowship, that's going to be a, a, a veto to your fellowship. Okay? The world has a counterfeit fellowship uh, that does not require you to be Spirit-filled, but God's fellowship does. If you're going to, be, if you're going to have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, you can't have carnality. Carnality will create a barrier, will create an obstacle to your fellowship, an obstacle to your prayers. And so uh, confess your sins, you're restored to fellowship. It's that simple. And if you have fellowship with the Father and fellowship with His Son, then and if I have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, then you and I together can have fellowship one with another, but only if we're both in fellowship. Make sense? And so this is the use here. Quinonia, of course, is our term for fellowship. Uh, 19 times in the New Testament, and we're very familiar. Uh, Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. What else? The breaking of bread, prayer, and fellowship. And those are our spiritual functions. And so, uh, you know, if, if, if you decide you, you want to kind of limit yourself and you're only going to do the teaching, you're going to uh, skip out on the, the potlucks, you're going to skip out on the fellowship, you're going to skip out on communion, you're going to skip out on prayer meetings, well then you're essentially pursuing one-fourth of the Christian way of life. Uh, because it's all four that are described in the corporate function of a local church in Acts 2.42. Okay? Do we still put those on the bulletins? I used to put those in every church bulletin. I love Acts 2.42 as a, as a key verse for our church operations. All right. Other fellowship that's spoken of in 2 Corinthians 6, Galatians 2.9. It's all throughout Philippians chapter 1, 5, 2, 1, and 3.10. Philemon uses it. Hebrews uses it. 1 John, a bunch of times in 1 John chapter 1. So we've taught fellowship before, and I think we're good with that. And then fourthly, if there is any, even the smallest amount, affection and compassion. If there is any, even the smallest amount, affection and compassion. And, and I'm glad we teach these things. I'm glad we teach these things biblically. There are some churches that would start with this one, make this item number one, and then kind of ignore everything else. All right? And, and so they specialize on affection and compassion. And there are just whole churches dedicated to affection and compassion. And that's what it's about. And I don't know what they're teaching and I don't know what their other things are about. But they're good with affection and compassion. That's, uh, that's, their, that's their spotlight. Well, we want to have that. We want to have that. We want to have it grounded in doctrine. We want to have it based on reality. We want to have it legitimately exercised. And so we do. And so the splanknon is the affections. The oiktirmos is the mercy or the compassion. And... Uh, Spend some time on that slide, working our way through that. Because it's not illegitimate. It's not illegitimate. I tell you, um, that's part of my crippled childhood, I think. Part of uh, what happens if, and, I, and don't get me wrong, I am grateful that, that from 
the age of four onward, I was grounded under Ken Jensen, John Eichmann, uh, R.B. Thiem, Ralph Braun, Glenn Carnegie. I mean, some of the most solid doctrinal pastors you'll ever meet. If there's a weakness, though, to the Baraka approach, it's the item right here we're dealing with in terms of uh, affection and compassion, is the sense that um, a lot of times it was mocked as... as uh, emotional revolt of the soul or it was dismissed as if it was as if you have any kind of emotions then you're a weak sister you got to just get doctrine and grow up and uh, wait a minute that's not always right wait a minute hold on we we have emotions we are emotional beings and uh, you can express those emotions biblically and not be out of line like jesus when he said my soul is troubled to the point of death was he a weak sister was he going through emotional revolt of the soul not for a minute and uh different aspects there. So anyway, I think I'm so thankful that when I arrived at Austin Bible Church and started listening to Ralph Braun, I got more of a balance on the emotional applications of things. I got, wow, that's, uh, that's good because that's, uh, that's like the best of both worlds. That's not, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We're still going to be solid on the, the doctrine and the exegesis and the Greek and Hebrew, and we're going to be real solid on the, on the doctrine, but we're also going to apply that doctrine to the emotional applications and for me, Ralph Braun was just marvelous in, uh, in doing that. And I will always uh, be thankful for that heritage. So there is affection and compassion. And there has to be. There absolutely has to be. There has to be because God designed us to have those. And there has to be because if we don't teach this and exercise this and apply this, somebody else will. The world will. Right? If I don't train my daughters, if I don't train my sons, if I don't train my children how to uh, have the biblical application of affection and compassion, well, then there's going to be some snakes coming along and they're going to show my girls a lot of affection or they're going to show my boys a lot of affection and compassion and other things. And then, whoa, wait a minute. Don't need to be showing them that, (laughs) okay? Wait till you're married before you start showing them that. But there's, uh, if we don't show the biblical affection and compassion, this world will. And um, just this world system is saturated with that kind of thing. So um, I'm thankful that we had the study there. Then he says, make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. And this uh, introduces us to the whole realm of, of plerao, pleroma, the whole realm of this, where we have uh, plerase, adjective there, uh, but uh, plerao is the verb to fulfill, to fill, to complete, to perfect. The idea of perfection. So when he says, make my joy complete, he says, perfect, perfect my joy. And uh, it's, uh, it doesn't mean that it was, that, that the joy that he had prior to that was wrong or that it was inferior. Because remember, Jesus was perfected. There was nothing wrong with Jesus. He was perfect. He was sinless and perfect. And yet he was perfected by the things that he suffered. And so uh, I think there's a, a larger realm of doctrine that we want to understand with respect to Plerao and Pleroma. Uh, I love Pleroma. In fact, uh, it's a great name for a church. Clay Ward Pastors Pleroma Bible Church. And I think, wow, I'm jealous of your church's name. That's a pretty good name. Pleroma Bible Church because it speaks to the fullness. That we are filled with the fullness of God. And uh, that fullness is the perfection as, as the Father provides it. So in any event, um, the verb plerao is number 4137. It has 87 New Testament uses. A lot of times it's uh, 
It's uh, used for the fulfillment of prophecy. This was done to fulfill what was spoken through so-and-so, the prophet, uh, different things. Uh, if, there, if Scripture is being fulfilled, then frequently plerao will be the verb that, that speaks to that. That doesn't mean the prophecy was imperfect. The prophecy was great. But until it's fulfilled, uh, it's just hanging out there as an as a unfulfilled, uh, yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecy. Uh, what gives that prophecy the, the true glory is, is when it finally happens the way God said it was going to happen. Then you end up with a perfected or a fulfilled prophecy. Rarely is it used in the imperative, but there are some. And so since this is an imperative, he's commanding them, fulfill my joy. He is ordering them to do this. And so it's pretty rare that plerao is in an imperative, but uh, at least three places it is. Matthew 23, 32 is an order. <laughs> he tells them, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. That's tough language, <laughs> right? Because they're all holier than thou and full of their own righteousness. They're pretty impressed with themselves. And he says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. It's quite fitting that you're, you're good at uh, building these tombs because you're about to populate another tomb at least for three days. Okay? And you say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, it's one of those second class conditions. It's not true, but they'd like to think if they were living back then, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Okay? You lie. A bunch of liars. Yes, you would have been. You would have been partakers with them. You would have been leading the band. You'd have been in, you'd have been uh, the, the head honchos of the whole conspiracy. Because you testify against yourselves. You are sons of those who murdered the prophets. You are their physical descendants. You are their spiritual descendants. You are truly the heirs of every murderer of a prophet of God because you're about to crucify the Christ. I, so you testify against yourselves. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. And he orders them, fill up then. So whatever judgment they came under for killing uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah for executing, the harm they brought to all the Lord's prophets, whatever their discipline was, is going to get magnified and, and compiled on this generation. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? So there's the imperative. There's another imperative of, Philippians 5, of Ephesians 5.18. Be filled with the Spirit. That's an order. It's not just a helpful hint. It's not a tip for uh, a good Christian moral life. It's a command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We also have uh, anaplerao, pleroma, plerase, or some compound terms, some cognate expressions. They all form a tremendous root study in the New Testament. We'll go back through that this morning, but we did at the time. Kittle in his lexicon develops these terms plus five more. Also, there's an excellent article on fullness in the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia. So if you want a copy of that, let me know and I can PDF that and send that to you. All right. Paul then outlines four steps for the Philippians to make his joy complete. And those four steps... He says, by doing this, 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 and this. There's four things that he says to do. But even those four are actually expressed poetically. 
They're expressed in a chiasm. They're expressed in a poetic structure pattern whereby it would be easy to memorize, it would be easy to learn. It would contain a poetic structure that we don't use so much in our language or our culture, but they used a lot of it back then, uh, in which case you have an A, and then sometimes you have an A prime, uh, and then a B, and then a, a B prime. Uh, there's different things there. So uh, you can either write it like that, or you can write it where you actually indent them in. In this case, it's uh, A, B, C, D, or like that, where the A and the D are parallel, the B and the C are parallel, uh, nested within there. Does that make sense? And so, because when it says being of the same mind as statement number one, and then when he says intent on one purpose in statement number four, he's actually saying the same thing twice. He's using the very same words. And it's, uh, it's interesting to me that even though it's, it's the same words that are used twice, the English translators decided to, to change things up a bit by using being of the same mind in the first phrase and then using intent on one purpose in the fourth phrase and why would you do that when the whole point of the parallelism is to say the same thing twice and to use the same phroneo verb in both cases, centering on our thinking. And so I would like to just rewrite the whole thing and translate the phroneo verb uh, the same way in both cases so that, it's, uh, not, um, so that it's not missable, so that any English reader can read that and go, oh, I see what that's doing there. Because when it says being of the same mind and then intent on one purpose, we're talking about the same thinking. Phroneo, the same thinking. All right, the one thing thinking. All right, so. Here we go. Oh, I forgot I did that. How clever of me. All right, so I put the A, B, C, D all on the one slide right there so that you can see the, the indentation, you can see the chiastic structure. And then in the following slides, I went ahead and redid the, the A, B, C, and D. All right. Being of the same mind, think the same thing. The Greek expression in, uh, in this verse, it says, ta auta phroneta. Ta auta phroneta. And this is what uh, you guys are getting here in, uh, uh, once you get introduced to autos in, uh, in chapter 3, chapter 4, this is what you're getting here. Um, the ta auta, that's a, that's a neuter singular. The same thing, one thing, neuter singular. Okay, and then phroneta is the present active subjunctive from phroneo. All right, so present active, continuous action, present time, keep on doing it. Keep on thinking, phroneo, thinking. thinking uh, phroneo is the dominant thinking verb of the book of Philippians, uh, used in 1.7, twice here in 2.2. It's used in 2.5 where we're commanded to have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. If you're only going to have one thinking, uh, the thinking of Christ is, is pretty good. <laughs> I mean, that's the one you want to have. That's the one you're commanded to have. Anything other than the mind of Christ is uh, inferior to the one thinking you're supposed to have. It's used uh, twice in chapter 315, it's used in uh, 319, it's used in 4.2 and twice in 4.10. So this is a book that's full of thinking. So, phraneo, to think, okay? It's related to frame, which is the mind. If you divide your mind, if you schizo your frame, 
then we call that schizophrenic. We used to call that schizophrenic. They've changed labels several times in recent years, which I think is a sick joke. But, uh, you know, <laughs> if you're dealing with schizophrenic people that are already unstable in their thinking, why do you change their label eight times in 30 years? You know, they might have trouble dealing with that. But I think they change labels because they have to justify the next printing of their, uh, of their DSM. All right. Just look at all this thinking. Remember in 1-7? It is only right for me to think this way about you all. Not feel this way about you all. Think this way about you all. And then uh, twice here in 2-2, being of the same mind, intent on one purpose, thinking the same thing, thinking the same thing. Think this way. Have this thinking in yourselves. Think this way in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's 2.5. 3.15. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, think this way. And if anything you think a different way, God will reveal that also to you. See, if you're thinking wrong, the Word of God shapes how you're thinking. So if you're thinking wrong, let the Word of God change how you're thinking. 3.19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite. This, these are the enemies here. Whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Who think through earthly things. It's all about the thinking. 4.2, I urge Yodi and I urge Seneki to think the same in the Lord. It says live in harmony. Such variety in all the ways that, that the translators are rendering every phreneto in the book of Philippians. I find that unfortunate. I urge Yodi and I urge Seneki to think the same. Develop the like-minded thinking that chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 we're all dealing with. And then twice in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have, what's the word? Concern. You have revived your thinking for me. Indeed, you were thinking about me before, but you lacked opportunity. All right? And it's pretty easy to tell what you're concerned by. Well, what do you spend your time thinking about? You know? Are you thinking about the Lord all the time? You should be. Are you thinking about your problems all the time? Thinking about your bills all the time? What do you, I mean, the things that you're concerned about is where you choose to let your mind dwell on. Let your mind dwell on these things. So think the same Thing. maintaining the same love literally having the it's a participle of echo to have tain outain agape the same agape the same agape i have is the same agape you have is the same agape everybody has it's christ it's god himself god is love god is agape we have the same love we have the same love for god the same love for god's word the same love for uh, the plan of God that has us growing in grace and knowledge. We should have the same love. And if we lose our first love, we're going to get rebuked for that. Like the church at Ephesus, the pastor at Ephesus. He left his first love. We should have the same love. United in spirit. This is um, interesting because it's uh, you take the soon prefix and you tack it in front of soul. You tack it in front of psukos. Okay, so I have a psukos and you have a psukos. We all have a, a, a psuche, a soul, right? But then we synchronize our souls. Like when you synchronize your watches or you synchronize your whatever, okay? 
<laughs> different things can get synchronized in different contexts for different reasons. Some of it I find inexplicable. All right. When some things get synchronized. But our souls should be synchronized. Okay? And to have a sympathetic soul, to be sync soul, or to be simp psychiatric. I coin a lot of terms that never get caught on in uh, popular culture. I've noticed. I've yet to hear any of these in a, in a media broadcast. But we should be. And it's the only place it's found. So Paul invented this word right here. It's the only place it's found in the Bible. It's the only place it's found anywhere in, I think, in Greek literature. But, but we do have nearby, we have an isopsukos, a single soul, a like-minded soul in uh, a kindred spirit in Philippians 2.20. When he talks about Timothy and says, I have no one of kindred spirit. I have no one of an iso, isotope uh, uh, soul. Okay. And so, uh, you know, you take a, well, I don't know when your last chemistry class was, I can't remember my last chemistry class, but I remember my last chemistry teacher, he was kind of crazy. But the, uh, we learned about isotopes, right? Of different elements, different isotopes of different things. Okay, well, essentially, Paul said, uh, you know, when, he, when thinking about his soul and thinking about Timothy's soul, he's like, man, Timothy's soul is just a different isotope of my soul. It's, it's that close. We are that kindred in our, in our spirits. Isopsukos is the phrase in Philippians 2.20. All right. We had a similar idiom in Philippians 1.27 when we talked about standing firm. He says he wanted to hear, he wanted to rejoice when he hears that the Philippians are uh, connecting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one psuche, with one soul. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. So having the same love, united in spirit, synchronized in soul. And then it says intent on one purpose. Again, it's phroneo. Again, it's the same for now. It's the one thing thinking. Ta hen, the one, the one thing. And so in the, in the A part of the verse, it was ta auta, franeta. In the D part of the verse, it's ta hen, franuntes. It's still franao, it's still the one thing thinking. The one thing thinking. So being and doing, being of the same mind, thinking the same thing, the one thing thinking. The one thing thinking. Again, franao. Present active participle of franao. Okay? And so we get a little geeky on the, on the grammar and we kind of have fun with it. But if we have a, a main verb and then you have a present participle, then uh, the, the present participle coincides with the action takes place at the same time as the main verb. In fact, a lot of times it defines the main verb. So we have the verb to make disciples in the Great Commission, and then the participles, the present participles that define that are, how do you make disciples? Baptizing them and teaching them. So the imperative is make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. If you're not baptizing and teaching, you're not making disciples because those participles define how you're doing it. And they, can, they, they are the activity that coincides with the activity of the main verb. All right? Did you follow all that? 
That's what a present participle does. An aorist participle, on the other hand, an aorist participle precedes the activity of the main verb. And so that's the go in the Great Commission. As you go or having gone, the go is not a command. Bugs me to death when I hear a pastor say, go, and he preaches it like it's a cheerleader. You know, go team, you know, go evangelize, go be a missionary, go save the world. And when they preach the Great Commission, you know, half their hour, maybe the whole hour is all about go. Well, wait a minute, that's an aorist active participle. It precedes the action of the main verb. The main verb is make disciples. So having gone, or where you go, or anywhere you go, having gone, the, the main emphasis is not go in the Greek. The main emphasis is make disciples. And then the present participles tell you how. The contemporaneous activity is baptizing them and teaching them. Now in this case, <laughs> in this case it's marvelous because the main verb is the same verb as the participle. They're both phreneo. So the main verb is think. Think, thinking the same thing. And then the participle that tells you how to think is the same verb to think. So, thinking the same thing, uh, the one thing, thinking. Thinking the same thing, the one thing, thinking. All right. Although Paul does have other passages where Pleroma language is employed together with joy, um, and he will combine Pleroma with joy in, uh, in Romans and 2 Corinthians and 2 Timothy. It's really the Apostle John. The Apostle John is the one that just, he teaches a fullness of joy repeatedly, again and again and again. Uh, and so, yes, the Apostle John makes a greater use of this tandem. He uh, uses the Pleroma language together with the joy terminologies, uh, quoting several of the Lord's usages that Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't highlight. But John 3.29, John 15.11, John 16.24, John 17.13, all those in the Gospel of John, is, uh, are, those are all passages where you've got Pleroma or Pleroma, you've got fulfilled, uh, complete, perfect, joy. Also 1 John 1, 4 and 2 John 12. So that's, uh, that's a concentration. If you really want to do more studies on uh, fulfilled joy, yeah, you could hit the three that, that Paul uses or four, uh, but really the Apostle John is the, uh, is the author for you and uh, work your way through those texts there. All right. Lord willing, rapture pending, we'll come back on Wednesday night and we'll get a look at verses uh, three through uh, five. We'll get a look at, um, I'm sorry, three through 11 with have this attitude, the kenosis doctrine. We'll deal with that on Wednesday. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for this review. And Father, uh, we forget everything that we've studied. It's been so much. And going back over these last two years, it's been a, a wealth of content. And so I thank you for this review uh, that we might spark our memories, that we might be motivated to uh, to listen again and again and again, to constantly refocus on what it is you expect for us to uh, to apply. Because you've given it to us, we are accountable. We must live out the doctrine you've blessed us with. So open our eyes to the uh, application opportunities. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.